Um, some of you know that I'm a little bit of a movie buff. Uh, it gets a little more difficult nowadays to go to movies and find a good one, but when I do, it's good to see that. But I've always enjoyed uh, action and drama and stuff on the big screen. Is my mic okay, or am I kind of buzzing? Okay, so maybe it's just me. Um, and so I enjoy going to movies once in a while, but uh, I've got to tell you, one that really impacted me when I was young, when I was a teenager, was a movie called Enter the Dragon, starring Bruce Lee. Now, I know some of you ladies may or may not remember that one. How many guys, ladies too if you did, but how many remember Enter the Dragon? Wow, I mean, that was just a fantastic movie. Again, Bruce Lee, what an incredible man. I can remember going with like three or four of my best friends, and we're sitting through the movie, and we just can't wait to get out of the movie because you know what happens when the movie's over. We're out in the parking lot, and we're just punching and kicking and screaming, and we're just beating each other up. Because uh, we were just so moved by, you know, just all those fight scenes and the incredible skill that this guy demonstrated. Well, I went right home, and the first thing I did is I got my phone book open. Remember those things back in the old days? And I looked in the yellow pages. I was looking for a martial arts school uh, because I just, you know, I wanted to be Bruce Lee. And so I, I happened upon actually this one school. There weren't very many back in those days. It wasn't as popular until actually that movie came out. But I found one. It was actually in Halifax. Now, you may not know the layout of Halifax, Dartmouth, but I lived up in the up, in the, uh, up by Coal Harbor, like I was way up, uh, I don't know if that's north or south, whatever that was back then, but I lived quite a ways away, and the, uh, the Taekwondo school was actually in Halifax, downtown, down downtown, actually by the uh, CN uh, rail station, and so literally what I would do about five times a week is I would get on a bus from my house, and I would go on a bus about the distance of here to at least downtown to City Hall, uh, on a bus, then I'd get off the bus, I'd walk to the ferry terminal, I'd take the ferry across Halifax Harbor, which itself was another 15 or 20 minutes, get off the ferry and walk three kilometers down to the CN train station where the, uh, where the club was. That took about 90 minutes. Then I would, I would you know, be in my class for an hour, hour and a half, and then do the 90-minute trek back. It was like a four or five-hour commitment, it seemed, every single day. And I would do that five days a week. And uh, so I, I participated in Taekwondo. It was a great, great exercise, great fitness back about 30, 40 pounds ago. And uh, on and off, you know, as clubs were available or as the opportunity was available. And in fact, the last time I competed uh, was back in 2000. In fact, I brought a little hardware uh, just to show you in case you don't believe me. Uh, this is actually my last competition was in what was called the Millennial Maritime Martial Arts Open Championship. And I know it doesn't look like it today, but I actually placed first in, in fighting, or what we call sparring, and I also received a, a gold medal for first in uh, what we call forms. Now, like I say, that was back in the year 2000, so that's... <sighs> got to catch my breath. <laughs> that's a lot of talking without breathing. But that was, uh, that was back 16 years ago. And uh, I was also part of our demonstration team. We called the demo team back then. And we used to travel around and do public exhibits. And we'd do all the high kicks and work the nunchucks and, and do all this self-defense stuff and breaking boards and all those kind of things. And so, so I don't really do that anymore. I can't really do the high whip kicks or the re, you know, reverse spinning kicks and stuff like that. And if you mess with me, I can leave a pretty bad bruise on your shin. So don't, you know, <laughs> don't get me mad. Um, you know, I don't break boards anymore, but I still, I still keep it up. We used to break boards with our fingertip jabs. Uh, I work on stuff now like Jello. I don't know if you ever, uh, just big Jello molds. Sometimes I feel ambitious. I put fruit cocktail in there, and uh, you know, so I kind of keep in touch. But I don't do a whole lot of that stuff anymore. Um, 
Now, I'm not an expert in, uh, in Bruce Lee by any means. But um, from what I know of him, he was not only one of the most prominent martial artists of his day. He actually died at the age of 33 back in, uh, in 1973. But he was also one of the most controversial of his day. And the reason was primarily was because when he returned from Hong Kong at the age of 18 and, uh, and went to university and while he was there began to teach students uh, martial arts, Caucasian students or wherever they were from, uh, mostly from America itself, uh, the, the establishment of that day was very upset with him because at that time, uh, back what, late 1950s, the martial arts were reserved for primarily Asian populations. So it was almost like a transgression to allow the secrets of the trade to be out there beyond the Asian community. So they were quite upset with him. But a second reason why they opposed Bruce Lee, and in fact, oftentimes what they would do is they would send experts in other forms to his classes, to his club, to challenge him. And, uh, but one of the reasons they were upset with him was because he taught that martial arts, now there's a spiritual application, so make sure you don't miss this. Uh, actually, I just want an excuse to show you my trophies. Aren't you impressed? Uh, I'll be taking pictures after. Anybody wants to come? But he taught something very radical, and that was that martial arts should not be about mastering a list of forms. It should be about mastering single moves that allow there to be fluidity in your fighting. So it wasn't all those forms and all this stuff you do sometimes you see the martial art movies before they actually begin to fight, but he wanted his students to be able to actually respond to a situation and not just go through a whole bunch of motions and forms that they had memorized from years and years of practicing. Now let me say that again. He wanted his students to not just go through the motions, he wanted his students to be able to respond to any given situation. And so to that end, his mantra was basically this. He would preach daily decrease, not daily increase. In other words, what he meant was you need to focus on the basics that you need. You need to cut away all the stuff that you don't need that takes so much time that really isn't of any benefit to you. You need to focus on the basics and learn to do them so well that you really don't need anything else. Now, in a combat situation, for example, he so refined and perfected his art form that he really didn't need anything else than just a single finger jab to put his opponent down, if need be. He's also very strong on on defense and not having to attack unless you had to. But he wanted people to understand in that day that you can have all the forms and you can make all the noise and you can do all the flailing around, but at the end of the day, that doesn't do you any good. You need to hone the things that you need and do them well. I thought to illustrate this point, I was kind of wondering whether or not I should show this, so I asked Kristen, who's not the best person to ask. Uh, I think, he, you know, he just couldn't stop laughing, so I took that as an okay. So uh, I apologize if it offends anybody, but it really does illustrate the point of how less is actually more. It's only about 20, 30 seconds, so enjoy.
So you get the idea, okay? You folks will get along with Christian really well. He actually watched like four times in a row, and every time he just got the same reaction. So I don't know what that says about Pastor Christian, but another insight that Bruce Lee had, I'm going to get off that topic in just a second, but to draw some comparisons here. But one of the things that really distinguished him from any martial artist was the understanding that, that martial arts, or being an expert in that field, is not just about physical preparation. It's not just about how hard you can hit and how fast you can be and how you can impress other people, but he actually believed that there, was a, there, was, there needed to be a search for something actually inside. And I thought what was interesting, in fact, I, I kept the magazine back from 1999 when I was reading through it in preparation. It came to mind because I thought I might use it someday, so it's been 17 years. You're the first ones to get this. But uh, he actually referred to the study of that spirituality. I thought it was very interesting. He called it the way. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, that's what the believers were called. The book of Acts is people of the way. And so Lee contended that if a martial art is just physical discipline, then you might as well engage in any other kind of physical discipline, whether it's weightlifting, playing basketball, whatever the case may be. If it's all about just the outside, there's nothing more than that then what's really the purpose of it? And here's something that he wrote. He said, there has to be an inner aspect to what they're doing. That's what martial art is to me. The physical stuff comes along with it. But each move should be an expression of the serenity that's inside. Because if the move is just to move, then it's just waving your arms and shouting. And anybody can do that. If a move is just a move, it's just waving your arms and shouting, and anybody can do that. You ever been to services like that? Can wave your arms, can shout, amen, do all the jumping jacks, whatever the case may be, or whatever you think makes you look like a Christian, and the first time you come against the enemy, bang, and you're laid out flat. <laughs> Can't believe you said, bam. John chapter 14, listen to what Jesus said. Those who accept my commandments and obey them, they're the ones who love me. And because they love me, my Father will love them, and I will love them, and I will reveal myself to each of them. Those who love my command, my word, and obey them, they are the ones who love me. And it's the ones who actually love me. Why? Because you press in to know me, through them I will reveal myself. Now the word commandment is something that kind of throws us off in our culture. But the word in the original language doesn't mean so much an order as it is an instruction for living in freedom and fulfillment. In fact, in the Hebrew language, commandments and laws are literally translated as the path that one walks. So when the Lord is saying, this is my command, this is my law, this is my word, He's basically saying, here's how you walk. Here's how life actually works. Hebrews 4.12 says that God's Word is full of living power. And what does God's, do, God's Word do? God's Word is actively working in your life to help prevent those things that come against you that want to choke the life of God out of you. That's the purpose of God's Word in our life. And because His Word is alive, when you give place to it, you actually see God's presence at work in every action and in everything that you do in your life, in every area. Does that make sense? God's Word is alive. So when, he, when His Word gets ingested into our hearts and begins to have its way, number one, it defends you against stuff that chokes God out of you. 
And then number two, it actually works his presence in that area of your life. You say, wow, God, I didn't know your interest in that area of my life. I didn't know you could make that area work, that you could actually unlock it for me. John 8, 31, Jesus said, you are truly my disciples if you remain faithful to my teachings. If you do, you will what? You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. You see, truth is not just an accumulation of information. Truth is not, you know, the forms. It's, that's not what it is. Truth is actually uh, an ongoing enlightenment. Truth is the kind of knowledge that has an inception. It gets into your heart by your opening your heart to the Lord and saying, Lord, show me truth. It has an inception. And then as you meditate on that truth and you submit your will to God's will to walk in that truth, that truth begins to have an increase in your life. And then ultimately, that truth wants to bring you to an experience that you actually experience the power of that truth. So it's not just something you have in your head that says, this is what we're supposed to do or not do. It's something you can say, I've proven it. This is true. I can, I can bank my life on this. This is how I'm going to live or act in this particular area. Now, as most of us know, when Jesus arrives on the scene 2,000 years ago in first century Palestine, the ways that God had revealed to his people, his commands, his laws, his words to his people, they effectively had become unknowable. Nobody could really recognize what God wanted anymore. This is what Jesus said in Matthew 23. He actually scolded the religious teachers. He said, he said, you make strict rules and you try to force people to obey them. But, they are unwilling, but you are unwilling to help those who struggle under the weight of your rules. And then in Matthew uh, chapter 15, these people show honor to me, God says with their words, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is worthless. So they're going through the motions. They're flailing their arms. They're doing all the form, all the actions. He says the things they teach are nothing but human rules. In other words, the religious leaders of God's people, by the time Jesus came, all they had was all these rules, which were bad enough, but they were teaching these rules as if they were God's commands and expecting people to follow them. Now, what Jesus was referring to was what was called Geziru. Geziru was very simply put into place by the rabbis to prevent people from accidentally breaking one of God's actual commands. Now, Geziru was commonly referred to as hedging the law or fencing in the law of God. It is, uh, or fencing in what is called the Torah. We know is uh, the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, or the Torah mitzvah, which has to do with the actual 613 commands that God gave to his people when they came out of Egypt and they began to move toward the promised land. Now you may be thinking, what do you mean 613 commands? How in the world are they supposed to keep all of those commands? Well, I wonder how many commands we have in our legal system here in Moncton. We probably have thousands of laws and commands, whatever things we have to conform to. You see, those 613 commands were not just a long list of rules. I want you to keep in mind that when Israel came out of Egypt, they had been in Egypt for hundreds of years. They had been in a nation. They grew up in a nation that worshipped demon entities. They were in a nation that had no regard for human life or even animal life. They were in a nation that had no idea who the living God was or how to walk with him, how to worship him. And so these 613 commands were basically God's roadmap to his people to teach his people how to live again, to learn how to live again. Now, by building a fence around the law, 
what the Jewish leaders did was they developed a system of rules that would keep people as far away from sin as possible. So here's the idea. Let's say I represent the one command God has given. Well, they want to make sure that the people don't break this law. So what do they do? They add another 20, 30, 40 laws to that one law so that as the people observe all those other laws, hopefully, even if they break them, they'll not break this law. Does that make sense? And so in their mind, they're thinking that's all good because we're really keeping people from sinning. For example, God said to them in Exodus chapter 20, he said, remember to keep the Sabbath day holy. In other words, set aside the seventh day of the week, each week, just for you and God. Pretty simple. In Exodus 35, in fact, the Lord elaborates on what is actually the Sabbath spirit, or the spirit of the Sabbath. He says this, you have six days each week for your ordinary work, but the seventh day must be a Sabbath day of complete rest. Doesn't that sound legalistic? Oh, God, you're such a bummer. You know, I don't want a day of rest. I don't want a day to just shut down and unplug and and revive. I don't want that. You're such a wet blanket. I mean, isn't that the way oftentimes people interpret God's commands? He says a complete day of rest, a holy day dedicated to the Lord. And so it was a day dedicated to your relationship with God, but it also guaranteed in the land that your employer couldn't make you work seven days a week. It was also a command for the employer. Everybody gets the day off one day a week. Now, interesting, the Hebrew word for work simply means to manufacture or to accomplish. It's referring to what we would call today the grind. You know, one day a week, I want you to get away from the grind. One day a week, I want you to stop slogging like you do all the rest of the week. So the Lord inserts a day of rest into the week because he knows that we need a day to purposely recuperate. We need a day to just kind of refocus on the week coming to rest and recuperate from the week behind. We need that day and a day of worship to the Lord, a day of fostering our relationship with Him. He also wants us to understand this, I believe, a basic life principle that I believe is still relevant today. The Sabbath to me says, listen, no matter how much work you do, there's always going to be something else that you can do. There's always going to be something on your list, something else you can do, whatever the case may be, and I want you to take one day to not be doing your work. On top of that, I believe the Lord is saying, that you'll never achieve anything of lasting, eternal, spiritual significance if your spirit is not centered in God. If you don't have a week, a day rather, at least through the course of the week, where you just kind of shut down from all that stuff, there's always going to be something pulling at you. And it's not just pulling at you to make you busy, it's pulling at you to pull you away from God's presence where you find purpose, where you find perspective, where you get realigned so that you can actually have a fruitful week in the days ahead. I believe that is the spirit of the Sabbath. But what the religious leaders did in Jesus, by the time Jesus came, they had made up these volumes of rules around that single Sabbath command in order to define exactly which actions constitute work. So God says on the Sabbath, you will not work. And they couldn't leave well enough alone. So they had to sit down in their committees and say, okay, what does work mean? So God says not to work, which to the average person, they understand to mean this. 
whatever you do for employment the other six days of the week, don't do it on the Sabbath. Doesn't that sound pretty straightforward? Whatever you're pouring 60 hours a week into, when the Sabbath comes around, don't be doing that. And so what they did is they took this word work, which God very simply, of course, meant as labor. Don't be doing what you do for labor on the seventh day. And instead, they said, well, just to make sure nobody does work or labor or manufactures, what we'll do is we'll prohibit any kind of exertion of energy at all, just to make sure that you don't work. And so if God's command is not to work on the Sabbath, then Gaziru commands that you're not able to, even able to handle an object that's associated with work. So you can't use a pencil because that's associated with work, and you might be tempted to do some work. You can't handle money on the Sabbath. You can't touch a hammer on the Sabbath, whatever the case may be. Whatever it is is associated with work so that you don't forget yourself and do some kind of work. Now, that line of reasoning was applied to every one of God's 613 commands. So imagine this. When Jesus talks about this unbearable weight of law that's upon the people, he's saying, for all 613 commands that God has put in place, you've added 20, 30, 40 rules on top of each one. So rather than having 613 commands, you have potentially 20,000 rules that the people have to know about everything to make sure they're not transgressing because by the time Jesus came, the rules were actually kind of considered commands in a sense. Not that the average person held them as holy, but the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they'd be just as harsh on you by breaking a rule as if you'd broken God's command. So you can understand what Jesus was saying by how difficult this weight was upon the people. Totally unbearable. What was intended to be a supernatural experience just led to exasperation. I'll just give you an example of a few of the Sabbath prohibitions uh, that were there. We have them listed. Now, God didn't say you couldn't do this, but the rulers made up these extra laws. So you couldn't sew on the Sabbath. You couldn't bake. You couldn't carry an object a distance more than six feet. You couldn't make two loops. So make sure your laces don't come untied or your sandals. You couldn't tie two threads. You can't untie two threads. You can't start a fire. You can't put a fire out. Pray your house does not catch on fire. You cannot write two more than, letter, more than two letters. You can't erase more than two letters. So that's just a bit of the nonsense that comes from those man-made rules. Now, in modern uh, Judaism or Orthodox Judaism, it's not a whole lot different. Some of the things have changed because they've become modernized. I'll give you just a few things, and I know some some Jewish, very, Jew, very Orthodox Jews in Toronto, actually, who observe these things. These are just a few little things. You cannot, for example, drive your car on the Sabbath. Why can't you drive your car? Because it actually requires a spark to start the car, which is a flame. And your engine actually burns gasoline, so that's burning fire. You can't start a fire, even though that's not one of God's commands anyway, but you can't do this, you can't drive a car. Another thing you can't do is you can't turn on your light, because the light is electricity. And in fact, I was reading on a Jewish site, and it said this. It said, what we recommend is before Sabbath begins, turn the lights on that you're going to need during Sabbath in case it gets dark, and actually tape them, lest you go to the bathroom in the middle of the night and inadvertently walking back, forget yourself, and turn the light off and go back to sleep and wake up on the Sabbath. Now the switch is off. You can't turn it on. And that is honoring God. Here's another one. You can't detach anything. Nothing that's been attached by glue or sewing or perforation. You can't do that. So literally, here's the recommendation. Before Sabbath, 
count out what you think you will need by way of toilet paper and paper towel so that you tear it before the Sabbath lest you run out on the Sabbath, be tempted to tear it and sin. Okay, now all of these rules basically are man's attempt to make sure that the person does not sin working, working on the Sabbath. Now, please understand me this morning. This is just by way of illustration. This is not to make light of Judaism because I'm not that old to forget that not that many years ago there were some things that we were not allowed to do on the Sabbath. Yeah, you're all waiting for that, weren't you? There were things that we could not do. And the biggest thing you couldn't do, you couldn't have fun. You couldn't have fun. I mean, there was a whole bunch of things you had to do. You had to go to church Sunday morning. You had to go to Sunday school, whether in the morning or, God forbid, in the afternoon. Then you had to come home and get your lunch, and you had to go to church again. But on top of that, you couldn't play. You couldn't swim in the summer. You couldn't have fun. I'll tell you, growing up, Sunday was anything but a day of rest. I don't know about you. For those of you who got saved late in life, you are blessed. You are blessed. You have no idea. Now, I'm making a bit light of it, but for some of us who grew up in that, okay, it wasn't the, it wasn't the funnest place to be on a Sunday. It was not a restful day. But the whole point of this exercise is to illustrate that whether you're Christian or Jew, it is human nature to add all of these trappings, all of these things that we think have to do with a faith in God to basic truths that God asks us to walk in. And we add all of these things that make following God a burden that Jesus himself said is, it's, it's, it's just too heavy. It's not life-giving. It's actually death-dealing. And another thing that these religious forms do, all these frills that we can add, is they create a visual separation between the so-called righteous and the so-called sinners. And so what we do is create this mindset that if you're doing certain things, then God, must, God does not love you. You're going to hell. Or you're not a Christian. But if you do these other outside things, if you look good, if you look wholesome, if you look clean, if you do the Christian things, then you're one of the righteous. You're not a sinner. And I just love the way when you look at Jesus, he wasn't doing it to be, to, be, to be mean with anybody. He was just walking in truth. But time and again, Jesus would turn that mindset on his head. And Jesus would, would, would have all these Jews around him and say, look at this Roman centurion, this pagan. He has more faith than any of you. Look at this Samaritan and what he did in the story to help that person who was beaten up on the side of the road. He's better than a whole lot of you. These people have more faith that pleases God than any of you. You've got the trappings. You've got the image. You've got the look outside. But you've got all this wrapping around you that God can't penetrate. And where's your heart? That's really what it's about. Jesus' word to these so-called righteous in Mark chapter 7, he says, the teaching you pass on to others actually cancels out the word of God. Think about that for a moment. The teaching that you pass on, religious teaching, well-intentioned teaching, teaching intended to keep you away from the world and to look and to act like a Christian, it actually cancels out the very real Word of God that can penetrate and change your life. And you settle for that. Those man-made rules they taught would keep a person from disobeying God's Word. That's what they intended. But it actually 
hindered God's word from reaching them and changing their hearts and bringing them close to the Lord, having an experience with him. Matthew 23, Jesus said to these religious leaders, how terrible for you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs which look fine on the outside, but you're full of bones and decaying corpses, corpses rather on the inside. In the same way, on the outside, you appear good to everybody, but inside you're full of hypocrisy and sin. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. Hey, I can go to the bar after church. That's not what I'm talking about. In fact, lest you think this message doesn't apply to us because we're not bound by these religious rules. I really believe this morning, friends, we are no less guilty if we have replaced an authentic life-changed relationship with Jesus Christ for a lifestyle that appears to be good on the outside, but on the inside, it's still, a fill, it's still filled with hypocrisy and sin and dead man's bones. We're no different. It's not just about the rules that are added that says we can't go here, can't do that. It's not just about that. It's about attitudes and rules, you might say, that we have added or embraced as Christians that says if I do this, 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 then I'm a Christian. But I may never darken the presence of God. The, the presence of God. I may never open his word. I may never be being changed by his word. I may never be sharing my faith with somebody about Christ because he's real to me and he's in my heart. I may never be sensitive to the needs around me and the Holy Spirit prompting me to say, do this, do this, open your mouth, say this. But I got this going on. Doesn't this look good? And the Lord would say, it's nice and white and it's washed, but how are you doing on the inside? You see, these people that Jesus was talking to were called Pharisees. We forget sometimes, but if you study Phariseeism, Pharisees, they were actually the evangelicals of their day. They were the evangelical believers, you might say. They were the one group who actually believed in the supernatural. They believed in spirits. They believed in angels. They believed in the resurrection. They believed in miracles. They believed in all that kind of stuff. The Sadducees didn't believe any of that, but the Pharisees did. But they had so bubble-wrapped their faith with a form of godliness that although they did not live like sinners on the outside, they were void of God's presence and full of sin on the inside. And Jesus said in John 5, you search the scriptures because you think they give you eternal life, but these various scriptures point to me. And I've got to be honest in the light of God's word and say, Lord, I can have that same attitude. I can do Christian stuff. I can do ministry. I can come to church, whatever the case may be. And I think because I do these things, because I follow these things, I'm a Christian. And Jesus says, you don't get it. All these things point to me, but they're not me. They're not me. They're a path to get you on, to get to me, to draw you into my presence. But it's about me and whether or not you know me. That is the key. And I want to ask you a very simple question this morning. My question is this. Do you know Jesus? That's simple. Do you love Jesus? Hear me, I don't mean do you love the idea of Jesus. I don't mean do you love the feeling of Jesus. Or you might even be in ministry like myself and just kind of like, you know, how Jesus maybe you feel uses you. That's not the issue. Many will say on that day, Lord, did we not do, 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 do. He says, get away from me. I don't even know you. I don't know who you are. And the converse of that, of course, is you don't know me. 
Do you love the Lord for who He is this morning? Do you love Jesus for how He reveals Himself to you in His Word? Do you love to spend time with Him? Hear me, friends. Do you actually miss Jesus when you don't spend time with Him? You see, these things are called relationships. We always say so flippantly in evangelical circles, it's not about religion, it's about relationship. But I think what we have actually oftentimes in our evangelical circles is we have religion, we have relationship, and a lot of us live right here with the rules. And it's not so much even rules of things I can or cannot do. It's this false sense of security or thinking that I actually have a relationship with Jesus because I follow the forms. And I have all these forms around me that insulate me and make me feel comfortable. But the reality is the Holy Spirit, Jesus himself, isn't getting through all that stuff to get to my heart. And my heart isn't being penetrated by the word and by the spirit and being changed and breaking these things off. So I actually reflect a walk with Christ that is real. Is his word alive to me? Let me ask you this one. I don't care what personality you are. You can be bold. You can be shy. It doesn't matter. When you love somebody, you look for an opportunity to talk about them. They just come up in your conversation. You know, and sometimes you got to, you know, it's kind of like being a a Christian who loves Jesus. It's kind of like when you got a boyfriend or a girlfriend, you got to kind of apologize. Oh, I'm sorry. There I go again talking about him. Sorry about that. Sorry about that. Why? He's, He's automatically, I mean, you're looking for an opportunity. You talk about them in a natural, it doesn't mean it's 24-7, but, but when the opportunity is there, you just blurt it out. Is your commitment more about form or about faith? Paul said in 2 Timothy 3, he said, he says, they will love themselves, speaking of last days believers, they will love only themselves and their money. Ouch, that hurts. They will love themselves and their money. They will act religious, but here's the key. They will reject the power that could actually make them godly. All the stuff they hold to and believe, they actually reject the person, a relationship with him that could actually make them who they profess to be. And so they continue to go day to day, week to week with the form of religiousness and maybe very sincere, but there's emptiness inside. There's dryness inside because we settle for the outside. If I could quote Bruce Bruce Lee one more time, he, he said this way, as I read earlier, He says, there has to be an inner aspect to what you're doing. If not, you're just waving your arms and shouting. And anybody can do that. Anybody can do that. The kids were talking about Cuba. And we've said this many times before, but, you know, one of the gauges, one of the measures we can use as a body of believers is ask ourselves, are we doing anything or is anything happening in our midst that we could still do if God wasn't here? Because really the the essence of the Lord being in our midst and being in our life is some things are being done that we couldn't do in the natural. That we couldn't do in our own strength. But they're being done because the Lord is is with us. So the question is, do I have a form of godliness that has no power to make me godly, to make me like Jesus? Or do I have a faith that is actually being refined and perfected and has authority in the realm of the Spirit? What's more, have I accepted a Christian lifestyle that may keep me from the outward appearance of sin by following certain rules, but it actually works against any real inner change that can only happen by living close to the Lord. Listen to Paul's words in 2 Corinthians. He said, we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. If you have your Bibles, underline them, those words. We are the aroma 
Christ. Now, Paul had been saved for some time when he said this, and I think that's very important. We are the aroma of Christ. The aroma in the Old Testament reference is simply a sacrifice pleasing to God. And I really believe that what, God, what pleases God today is the believer who knows and allows his word and his spirit to actually cut into their lives. See, we're called to be a living sacrifice. That's what it means. It means that at any time the Holy Spirit has permission to come into my life and start cutting stuff away, to let the blood flow if necessary. Why? That I might be more like Christ and that my life might actually be attractive to everyone else. I like what Dietrich Bonhoeffer once said. He wrote, salvation is free, but discipleship will cost you your life. Salvation is free, but discipleship, being like Jesus, is what it's all about. It's going to cost you your life. You see, it doesn't matter how long I've been in church or how much I've surrounded myself with Christian things. There's no such thing as time served in God's kingdom. I believe the Lord would have us understand that you're either advancing or you're retreating. Hear me, saints, you're either growing more Christ-like or you're growing more cantankerous. You're either a resemblance of the presence of the Lord or you're just a pain in the pew. I can say that, right? Pain's not a bad word. I'm telling you, one of, the, one of the saddest things I find in the body of Christ is to see people who are growing older. And it doesn't mean you're older necessarily just by years. You could have been saved at five years. Now you're 45 years old and you've been 40 years in the Lord or you're 80 years old and you're 50 years in the Lord. One of the saddest things for me to witness is believers who claim to have walked with Christ for many, many years and they're just sour. They complain. They get upset about little stuff. They're like babies. And it's like, I don't get it. You're a pain in the pew. If you, if you actually love Jesus, if you actually have a relationship with Jesus, why are you becoming sweeter? Why are you becoming gentler? Why are you becoming more affirming and positive and, and faith-filled? I mean, doesn't he get sweeter and sweeter as the days go by? But you see, he doesn't unless I say, Lord, every single day, if I walk with you 10 years, I walk with you 60 years, every single day, Lord, my life is a living sacrifice. You come and cut away whatever is not of you. It's not about form, friends. It's about, it's about the heart, living close to the Lord. Your faith can be inspiring or your faith can be irrelevant. I love what David prayed in Psalm 71. He said, now that I am old and gray, let me proclaim the good old stories from the good old days. Dead, D-A-Z-E. The good old days. Because you see, when you look back, you know, it's all perfect back then. Isn't it? It's all so wonderful. The good old days. You don't really see the way it was a lot of times. Yeah, there's a lot of good stuff. There's a lot of bad stuff too. But the point is, David says, let me declare what? The power of God today. When I'm old and gray, let me declare to the next generation, God is alive. God is real. He's still changing my heart. I still believe God can move. I still believe in revival. I still believe it's the same old, same old. Friends, the formula hasn't changed. I get that. But friends, we still need the same presence of God, but needs to be fresh today. All the trappings, all the junk. Say, Lord, I want to cut that away. Bottom line, do I love you or not? Do I know you or not? The question is, young or old, do you know Jesus today? Not how good can you navigate around church. Do you know Jesus? Do you love Jesus today? Or do you have one of these? 
Oh, I remember back in 1975. Oh, there was a wonderful move of God. There was a great revival. Well, wonderful. That's got nothing to do with today. Right? Same God, yesterday, today, and forever. If anything, that should inspire me. Not complain about today. It should be inspire me for God to do a new thing today. A new thing today. Friends, this doesn't mean anything. Doesn't mean squat. Doesn't mean squat. If I, did, if I kicked you up the side of the head, I'd be in the hospital bed for a week. Or I'd be very sore at the very least. But how many of us in the body of Christ have these? And once in a while, we bring them out. Oh, I remember when. Yeah. You get the point? We celebrate the things that God has accomplished for us. We all have mementos. We all have trophies. We all have testimonies that can be encouraging. But my question is today, what victories do you have today? Are you an aroma of Christ to people around you today? I'm going to ask the worship team to join me. You may remember the story back in Joshua chapter 14. And friends, I'm not being tough on any age group. Don't get me wrong, because when Jesus talks about a generation, a generation of faith or a generation of stiff-neckedness or whatever the generation may be, he's not talking about an age group. He's talking about a mindset. You can be, you know, 80 years old and have a heart of a 25-year-old and the faith of a new believer in a sense. You can be 25 years old and be ready to be buried. It's a generation, it's a mindset. But in Joshua chapter 14, we have the story of Caleb. You may remember the story. Caleb and Joshua were the two spies who went with the other ten to scout out the promised land under Moses' leadership, right? Moses said, go check it out, the promised land. Basically what he was saying is go and find out the best way to enter there and overtake the enemy. They go and the other ten, all they can see is giants. All they can see is opposition. Joshua and Caleb come back and say, we can take the land. The Lord is with us. Let's go for it. Well, the people, unfortunately, listen to the majority, listen to the other ten. They don't go in. So for 40 years, God says, you're just going to wander in the wilderness. You're not going to go anywhere. 40 years wandering in the wilderness. Well, the 40 years now is over. Uh, Moses is dead. And here is Caleb. Caleb gets a band of men from his tribe, and they come to Joshua in a very nice way to say, hey, 40 years is up. It's time to go in. Now, Joshua didn't say, hey, whoa, 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 Caleb. Caleb, you're 85 years old. What are you thinking? Listen to what Caleb says. 85 years old. I am as strong now as, I, as when Moses sent me on that journey. And I can still travel and fight as well as I could then. And he goes on to say, and if there's giants still in the land, I'll drive them out with the help of God. But I'm going there. In fact, he says, I've got a piece of real estate that I saw 40 years ago. God's going to give that to me. I am going for it. And my simple question to us this morning is, when was the last time you put a trophy on your mantle for God? When was the last time you actually got in the ring? When was the last time you actually looked at some spiritual disciplines, things the Holy Spirit's talking to you about? And he says, I'm not interested in all this. I want you to have a spiritual finger jab. Bang. I want you to fine-tune your spiritual weapons. I want you to use your gifts. I want you to understand that I want to have a living faith relationship with you. You know, my motto is simply this. After I read Joshua, after I read uh, Caleb's story, my motto is this. I want to thrive at 85. That's my motto. Now, I want to thrive at 85. Lord, if I'm cantankerous, old fart, if I'm a... If I'm a pain in the pew, Lord, take me home at 70. 
Whatever you got to do. If I'm not going to bless your work and be a part of your work and be affirming and thank you, Lord, for what you've done in the past, but it reminds me of what you can do now. But the power is not in the stories. The power is in a fresh, vibrant, living faith in Jesus Christ where I'm a sacrifice before the Lord. And I say, Lord, come and cut away all the trappings and all the garbage. I'm done. Next week I'm going to talk about what it means going through that whole discipleship process in Jesus' day. Some really fascinating stuff. And we've had some wonderful time around the altar, so I'm not, ooh, so I'm not going to hold you up. Would you stand with me? But as we simply close in this song, would you simply do this as an act of faith before the Lord? Would you just simply say, Lord Jesus, today and through this week, you have my permission to show me as I walk with you Whatever trappings there are around me, whatever frills I've added on that look good on the outside, but Lord, I know my heart. Lord, I give you permission to come and surgically cut that stuff away. Take the machete, whatever you've got to do. Lord, start slicing that stuff away. Lord, I want to know that I know you. I want to know that I love you. I want a relationship with you. I want to talk about you. I want to love you. I want to worship you. I want it to be me and you. I want that first love again.